0: That was and Matador from drummer Billy Cobham's debut solo album Spectrum from 1973. Billy Cobham is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to episode 14 of the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the OSIRIS Podcast Network. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting music fans like you with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcasts and visit our partners at Relics.com for music news. The Burning Ambulance podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher and plenty of other places. And if you want to support us on Patreon, visit Patreon.com slash Burning Ambulance. Billy Cobham is an absolute legend in the worlds of jazz, rock, fusion, and even Latin music. Uh, he's played with Miles Davis. He was the drummer for the original lineup of John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra. He's made a ton of albums as a leader and has played on literally hundreds of sessions for just about everyone you can imagine, from James Brown to the Fania All-Stars to Sonny Rollins, McCoy Tyner, Stanley Tarantine. He was in a band with Bob Weir from the Grateful Dead for a few years and on and on and on. What uh, what I find amazing about his drumming is the precision of his attack and the way he blends rock swing and latin rhythms into a sound that's all his own. He's incredibly fast when he wants to be but he's also able to slow things down and get really spacious and gentle and he can play a totally minimal beat without feeling the need to explode all over the kit like a a lot of really skilled uh, prog and fusion players do. But of course, you know, hearing him tear shit up is the real appeal. Uh, I saw him play live recently. He was performing a lot of material from his Crosswinds album from 1974, along with some new music, and the band was really interesting. It was electric guitar, electric bass, keyboards, but then his horn player was primarily playing a bassoon. I don't think I've ever seen anybody play a bassoon live, certainly not in a small group context. Maybe once when I saw Cecil Taylor, he was leading something like 25 musicians at the Knitting Factory in the early 2000s, and I think there might have been a bassoonist wedged in there somewhere, but this guy was playing one through effects pedals and stuff, and it just sounded insane. Anyway, uh, I spoke to Billy Cobham by phone at the end of March, before the show I went to, and we had some connection problems at the very, very beginning, which is why the interview you're about to hear may seem to start kind of abruptly. It's obvious, I think, that the question you hear me ask first is not the first question I asked him. But once we got the phone issues resolved, we had a really great conversation. Uh, We talked about a lot of different aspects of his career, about Miles Davis, about John McLaughlin about Santana, about the Fania All-Stars, about the actual mechanics of drumming. Uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this episode, so I'm going to play one more piece of music. Uh, This is a live version of The Noonward Race, which is a tune off the first Mahavishnu Orchestra album, but this live version was on a compilation originally and then showed up as a bonus track when all of their records were put together in a box set a few years ago. So here's that. And right afterwards, you'll hear my conversation with Billy Cobham. So yeah, the John Abercrombie and the Brecker Brothers, their first appearance in your band, in your solo band, was on Crosswinds. But before uh-huh. that, they were in this band, Dreams, with you. So tell me a little bit about that, about Dreams, because I've never heard those records.
1: Okay, um, Dreams was uh, it's the closest thing to a, a Dixieland rock and roll band that I ever experienced. Uh, that's why I called it that because everybody had the freedom to improvise uh, on on a, within a specific environment while still playing what we had. So it depended, and also it, this was like every which play because we I mean with the horn players they were the they were the main attraction. Barry Rogers, trombonist, and and uh, Michael and Randy, the songs took on a a, a kind of a protozoa kind of relationship. It could morph. The song could morph and, and expand and contract in different ways because of the way that they approach playing it as a unit and also on uh, in, on an individual basis depending on the day. It just like depending on how they felt. Meanwhile the form of it all was held together by the rhythm section, which was me and Doug Lubon, Jeff Kent, and Apple mm-hmm. And we had, a, we had a, a really good time. When 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 Jeff and, and Lubon uh, dropped out of the band, then we had uh, Don Grolnick. And at one point, uh, who came? Oh, um, Chuck Rainey, and then... And so we had that rhythm section. And then Will Lee came, and that was the last rhythm section that I was involved in with that band. But that was fundamental. Now, the rhythm section was sort of like the foundational uh, engine and, and, and set uh, sandbox, if you will, that you could, they could play inside. But yet they could take it anywhere they wanted and, and alter it and uh, based on their real-time agreement sound-wise. And it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, for a while there we we had we had a strong shot. The problem is, is that we didn't know what we had. <laughs> this <laughs> is all being done kind of naturally. Mhm. Yeah.
0: And then a bunch of those guys came back for your solo albums, not just John Abercrombie and the Brecker Brothers, but also I recognize uh Don Grolnick's name as well. He was a keyboardist on some of your 70s records.
1: Uh Grolnick, yeah, right. Grolnick was in there too at one point or another.
0: Mhm. Now, George Duke was on several of your solo records. Uh, he was on Crosswinds and on Life and Times and on Inner Conflicts. But a lot of the time, he was under a pseudonym. Was that just because of like label politics and stuff?
1: Yes, in a word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they just he just kind of had to hide him.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, no, it was his choice, not mine.
0: Oh, okay. You know.
1: Yeah, I it was I mean, I was not that 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 up to speed on what was going on at that particular time, except that I think it was more George's and his management's uh approach where they did not want to expose him on on recordings that they felt would be in the future somehow watered down his words. So that I mean, just from my opinion. So they, they told him to call himself whatever he called himself. Uh, uh-huh. I can't, can't remember. Yeah. But uh, it was something really kind of funny. And, you know, it just became that kind of thing. As long as, I mean, like, like record companies really cared until somebody brought it up in the legal department or someone brought it to the legal department of the record company to see if they could get any more money extracted from the artists, you know, based on the technicality. Fundamentally, you see, now you got me started. And that's a terrible thing. Yeah, there you go.
0: Yeah. I'll shut up. (laughs) You know, I was, I was, I wrote about him a while ago, a few years ago. And I said, you know, he had the kind of career that nobody gets to have anymore. Because, I mean, he was with you. He was with Frank Zappa. He was with, you know, Cannonball Adderley. Did his own stuff. You know, crossing all these sort of territories of jazz and funk. And... I feel like that whole era from about 69 to 75 you could have a career like that you know like a guy like azar lawrence could play with mccoy tyner and miles davis and then also work with the guys from earth wind and fire you know or Mm -hmm. somebody like pharaoh sanders just you know combining jazz and funk and music from africa and yourself you know moving in
1: Uh a million
0: different sessions like what was the uh-huh. the the atmosphere around during those years that that sort of culturally allowed all that stuff to happen?
1: As a matter of fact, I I think that there is a paralleling atmosphere now um, because music has a tendency. To, I mean, for this to happen again, and not just to happen again, it's happening again because it was also a lot of musicians trying to fill not trying to but having having to fill uh, the, the 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 gap uh, or the, the the short side of the, the vacuum left by many other artists who would do that remember 2016 2015 2016 was one of the most devastating years for loss loss of musical artists i mean a lot of people left us they died Mhm. I mean all kinds of people passed Uh over, I mean since the turn of the of the millennium, I I I've, I've never heard of so many people especially in the music industry <laughs> leaving at the same time. You know, and it tells makes one think and wonder if it wasn't set up that way in inadvertently by what they did to themselves, or how how much it was, or whatever happened that caused the whole scene to just fall out, because a lot of people died just like Jimmy, uh, but Jimmy died really fast. I mean, these uh, these people were dying. They would you know, there's a there's a show called The Walking Dead, and these people were, as it turned out, were fundamentally just that, from the different kinds of synthetic drugs of whatever that they took in contact with at one point or another and they continued to work and continued to try to take care of themselves but they had already been stabbed so i suspect that that may have had a lot to do with it mm-hmm. and they all just checked out fundamentally about the same time
0: yeah yeah now i'm curious because okay you worked with miles and you worked with Mahavishnu Orchestra, and you worked with Dreams all under Columbia. Like, all those people were signed to Columbia. So what made you decide to sign to Atlantic as a solo artist instead, initially?
1: Well, my first shot was to try to get with Columbia, but they didn't want me. And again, now we're talking politics. You know, I'm a drummer. Drummers don't make music. Um, drummers just keep the beat for everybody who can't... who. Who, who are supposedly called musicians You know Even to this day you can have a record scratcher And if the record scratcher is not happening It's always the fault of the drummer But nobody No one ever thought that the record that the guy Is scratching and destroying uh, May have had a lot of musical Information on it at one time That would blow his, his whole concept away Yet It's the drummer's fault Well um, Since I couldn't get a a hold on anything at Columbia and I didn't next thing you know, uh, I'm trying to find a, uh, a a label and the management of, of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, actually the management of John McLaughlin, who was Mahavishnu.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they they decided, yeah, sure, 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 you know, I felt like they were just signing me on and finally Matt Wise who was a pretty strong Element in the band, I, and I feel that was very on. I mean, was very weary of me if I didn't, because I didn't ask for much at all. I always, I never depended on him for anything. I worked on my own, and that really pissed them off. Another nail in the coffin for me was that I was independent, and I chose to find a fine, instead of waiting to get paid more money, which I have been asked to do. Asked asked of them, I did get. I was successful once or twice, but since I wasn't getting what I needed, I would, I would go out and, and, and enhance whatever I could, when I could, on my own, pay my ticket, whatever, to go back to Rudy's in and, uh, and, and New York when the band was off and, and record it or something like that and, and supplement my income. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, not necessarily the something that endeared me to these guys. so. Because they didn't know, they had no control over that. So what, one thing led to another. When it finally came time for me to record, we tried. I wanted to record Columbia because I knew I was going to be leaving the band. I knew I knew that I was going to be I was going to be out. Um, McLaughlin had an alternative situation, and in the uh, and Michael Walton and and the, all of that. The next morphing of of Mahavishnu would be everybody wearing white on the bandstand and, and car- you know throwing flowers and blah blah blah. <laughs> uh, I throw back to uh, you know uh, strawberry strawberry fields forever, whatever. And uh, next thing you know, I get this this call from. Uh, well, I get I get call from that that tells me that Mark Myerson, the head of AR at, at Atlantic, would take a shot at it. And so I I decided to put together my presentation and and do it. And uh, what happened was. Uh, I went there uh, with a, I had a short rehearsal, but little I can remember of it, with people whom I felt matched up well with the music that I wrote. And uh, those people were Tommy Bowen, John Hammer, and uh, Lee Mm-hmm. We went over stuff, and the next thing you know, I mean, in the blink of an eye, through Mahavishnu, I called Ken Scott, the engineer, and he agreed to produce it, and the rest was history. He got it done. It uh, didn't hurt. It didn't harm anybody. It took no time at all because back in those days, records were taking months to make and costing hundreds of thousands of bucks. And along I come with thirty-two thousand five hundred dollars, and I make a record and save it for twenty-two grand and get money for myself. And that's completely shocked everybody because it just you know that just didn't happen. And uh, I mean, I, I remember making the call when I when I returned home from from uh, London. With the master, and I called Matt Weiss, and I said, hey, Matt, I'm home. He says, you're home? What happened? I said, we made a record. Done. He said, but you left on Friday. It's Monday. I said, yeah. And he was silent. And uh, it it was about the, the, the speed. Okay, one thing. But I think the, the next punch came down the road when the record became number 31 with a bullet as an instrumental record produced by a drummer Mm
2: -hmm.
1: there was a lot of things like that that went wait a minute where did we how did we miss it where did we go wrong but no one ever said anything to me because again I wasn't independent I was by myself and so that could be controlled in a different way which it was Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you
1: know what the hell I was doing and so it was easy to you know walk all over me, because I I really didn't understand, and the only way I was going to learn was to make mistakes, so here we are today, but goodness gracious, uh, it's been a bumpy ride.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now you were making like at least one album a year for a while with them, like sometimes two albums a year, so were you just writing, recording, touring constantly at that point?
1: As much as possible, because that's the only way I could put some food on the table for myself and family. Mm -hmm. So, I, I got the, I got the message though you want to make a record? Okay, make a record. You want a tour? You got to make another record. Okay, I made another record Crosswind. you know it, 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 uh, it, it became like, okay, in order for me to to have a band and it was a good band to attract people to continually work, I had to hire the best cats I could who would help me to present based on my reputation at that point my ideas. We did very well because one of the key things that happened that was consistent was I was a pocket drummer at the very beginning and threw out all of the stuff with Mahavishnu, so I knew how to play simply but effectively. And that helped me quite a bit. It wasn't about playing a million notes per bar. It was about playing the right notes at the right time in the bar and presenting a story which I was fortunate to be able to do through music.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm still here.
0: Yeah, that, what you're saying about your playing style is actually what I want to ask you about because the thing that I notice when I listen, and I'm not a drummer, but you have an incredible precision, it seems to me. And so I'm wondering, you know, is that like marching band training or where did you get that, you know, what kind of exercises and practice do you use to get that kind of like speed and accuracy and precision? When you're playing,
1: well, one uh, layman might call it multitasking, and drummers call it polyrhythmic coordination. Learning to do multiple things at the same time with the four arms you have in the brain, managing that information, synchronizing, so that you 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 are comfortable doing this, you know. And hey, heck, we walk. I mean, the 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 coordination gets into walking and talking and moving your arms and you never even realize it, or hands to impress or speak with people. That's all multitasking. You know, to sit down and type uh, or to play the piano with hands going in the opposite direction or together, uh, playing different notes, and hearing it. The brain has a lot to do with that. I mean, without being able to have this ingrained, you cannot do it. So that means practicing over and over again The task that you need to do, so that you feel comfortable doing it, as you would be, as if you were speaking, or or singing, or walking, or running. Uh, And of course, yeah, you make mistakes in the beginning. You you fall before you walk, and then you walk, and then you run. And uh, when you play the the drums, it's about playing the bass drum, playing the hi hat, getting them all in sync with the with with your two hands on on any drum. And it's not just heating the drum. It's the tones that change. So being able to relate those sounds and frequencies to the patterns that you're playing with. And that's where you get synchronized.
0: Now how do you balance that kind of the precision that I was talking about with your style, you know, with swinging? Because people usually think of that as requiring a little bit more you know, looseness to the rhythm.
1: Well, the way you do that is to, to learn how how oh, I mean, now we're talking about phrasing, and that phrasing to me is is akin to to dialects. Where Where are you now? Where you, Where do you live? New Jersey, sound like an Easterner, New Jersey. Okay, you go down south and and try to speak to somebody, and they they may or may not understand you. You definitely won't understand them. You know, <laughs> if you go to the deep south, that's just the way. And and, and you know, but once you stay there a little bit you'll notice that you become com- you become accustomed to the way they speak, and it's just different dialects. I mean, take the, the language of Spanish, there are, I don't know how many different dialects of Spanish and the way that people speak it, to the point where many people don't understand each other. In Spanish, the same, or the Scots versus the Irish versus the Welsh versus the English. Completely forget it. I mean, you know, if you don't know, it, it can be rough. It can be rough, and it, it goes on like this. So the whole objective is, is to to learn how to be in tune to these these changes in phrasing, uh, uh, and 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 so from jazz to hip hop, you, you know, you sort of get used to the grooves that you hear in the radio or wherever you might hear it in the public. How people how people pronounce or accentuate things, and you play what you feel, you play what you've experienced in life. That's what that's all about, and you stay in sync, because the, the, the fundamental foundational discipline, for me, is always been there. i played in marching bands for a long time, jump course.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and, but we had a straight up and down, in the box, no, no rounded elf edges kind of presentation, so everything was a march, Everything was just exactly there. And then from there, you round off the edges. And if you're good at it, you'll be able to do it by hearing how things are phrased, playing playing your instrument as if you were speaking a language. Now you got something.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask you about a few. Sessions that you played on because just the ones that kind of leaped out because you've played on hundreds and hundreds of records. But the George Benson album, uh, Giblet Gravy, Uh was that your first studio credit? I think so. And how did you get that gig?
1: No, 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 it wasn't. Um, I think I did something for Hubert Laws at uh, for then for Cleve Taylor, then um, uh, who was with Verve. And the way I got my recording uh, co- commitments started with uh, my being in, uh, brought into a, a band to take the place of the late Freddie Waits, who was a great, great musician drummer, but uh, at the time had had taken ill. And I, I had a reputation for subbing for Grady Tate, uh, Bobby Thomas, uh, subbing as a young player around town playing with uh, in trios like with Billy Taylor or uh, Eddie or people like this so my name was around so I would sup for these guys and became familiar a familiar name not just for my playing but what was very very important at least as important especially in New York because they took no prisoners if you didn't do this correctly and it was called Be On Time which meant come and play when you have agreed to be there. You play and and you do a great job and you leave. Thank you very much. If you can, there weren't a lot of people who could do that. So that helped me. Mm-hmm. And through Ron Carter, Roland Hanna, Hubert Laws, Grady Tate, um, who were very well ensconced in the recording studio, they didn't shout my name out, but a lot of people say, Man, you know if anybody could take Grady's place for it. Grady can't do this, or if somebody can't do that. Mel Lewis can't do this. Uh, they said, Yeah, call his number. This guy will do it. That's all. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot for them to do it. Reason? They were putting their reputation on the line, because if I didn't do well, people remembered who recommended me.
0: Right. Right
1: You know, and then they wouldn't ask them anymore, mm-hmm. see, which meant that the word would go around and this cat doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, and so they were reluctant if they didn't really know anyone to say anything. So when my name popped up, it meant a lot, you know, and uh one thing led to another, I did the thing for creed, and then the next thing that popped up was for. Oh, uh, the guy who produced the uh, uh, guy who produced Ramsey Lewis uh, when he had that he had his hits, The In Crowd and all of that mm-hmm. um, and they he was from Chicago and he, he asked for a drummer to to work with with uh, with George I mean, because Wes Montgomery had died I think in 67 or six, something like that Yeah. 68. Yeah so they, there was a vacuum left again and George was the guy that they they chose to fill it I mean they saw he, they had this new electronic machine where George could play in an octave divider and it would it would sort of like give him the idea the flexibility to, to sound like Webs when he played with his thumb
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that we made this record okay and after that within I'd say weeks, I ended up on a record with, with uh, Kenny Burrell. And that was with Creed Taylor. And that was called God Bless the Child. And from there, I started recording both of okay.
0: them. Yeah, yeah. Now you were on, you were on the, uh, the James Brown song, King Heroin.
1: It was a recording done at, um, at A&R, and r 48th Street. Uh-huh. So that was Phil Ramone's thing. And I just, I don't think I did anything more than that with him. I don't remember
0: just and the one track not
1: that I was might have been one track then.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah. Now I got to ask you about working with Miles Davis because you did a, a string of sessions between November '69 and like the first half of 1970. But you, uh-huh. weren't, you weren't the only drummer he was using around that time. He was also working with Jack DeJannette sometimes, and Lenny White sometimes, uh-huh. depending on the session. Uh-huh. So when he brought uh-huh. you in, what was he looking for specifically from you, do you think?
1: He was looking for me to play what I played. I don't think Miles Miles may have mentioned one time to me, you know that, that pattern you played in rehearsal, I want you to play that, play that on the session. And I was so petrified that I went, yeah, okay. And then when I got to the session, I didn't remember it. (laughs) So he said, remember that thing that I told you to play? And I went, "Uh uh-huh. Because I never spoke on the sessions, uh, unless spoken to. And he said, well, play that. And I played something. And he said, that's not what I told you to play. That's not what you played yesterday. He said, but I like what you played," And I said, okay. And (laughs) it's because I couldn't remember what I played the, the, the night before. I was just doing whatever I did Uh Uh and that was the only time that I can recall outside of him asking me to join the band where I had to respectfully decline that I had any conversations with him up to that point but uh, what I learned from those sessions was primarily just to to be independent of mine and to contribute Sincerely, what I felt I could I could in, uh, offer musically at that time in real time, and it was always accepted by him. I would never question, especially I mean, we went we did something with Miles uh, the day before we went in to record the Jack Johnson project with McLaughlin and, and Michael Henderson and Steve Grossman, and I, gee. All I know is that we sat down, I set everything up. McLaughlin, we were waiting for Miles. Miles said, Don't play in between takes. We don't play in between takes. Miles McLaughlin gets antsy and starts to play something akin to uh uh either awakening or something that we did with knew, and he did with Tony as well and that uh, that it was a kind of a shuffle. Mm. But was, and the next thing you know we're, we're just just kinda of, waiting for miles to get ready and waiting and there's a groove that's just building as we're playing softly taking it easy waiting for miles miles comes out and said i told you not to play in between takes so everybody stops, and he goes back in the studio and mclaughlin now finds it a game because you know you tell mclaughlin not to play he will play tell him to play he won't play so next thing you know we're at it again and this time it's even more intense and Miles comes out to cut a, make a long story short and says red button and that was a record button and that's what you hear on Jack Johnson including Herbie Hancock's impromptu entrance with a bag of groceries and Miles tells him if you can't hear it, but Miles was telling him to play and he said I have to leave and Miles telling him to play. Then Miles is threatening him to play or else and he ends up playing on a parthesis organ that never hadn't been played in years. It had dust all over it. They plugged it in. It blew up everything. But we wouldn't stop the groove, and that's why in that record is one of the shortest records I ever made. I think it took us about, in terms of time, we walked into that studio. Couldn't have been more than eleven thirty. We were done by twelve thirty. <laughs> there was nothing else to play.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: in a three-hour session.
2: Yeah. That's it. Yeah.
1: And uh, again, you know, that's the only record that I know that I played on for sure no matter what Miles told me or anything I don't know but I hear I see my name on, on records and I go I did that really okay whatever <laughs> I know I'm, anyways like on the corner circling the square and the round or whatever they call that uh, live evil I don't know I mean one would have to if they could get still get in touch with him get a hold of Teo said, I don't know really I don't know mm-hmm mm-hmm
0: what because it's it seems to me that the guys in the front sometimes have a different sense of time than the guys in the back. so what was what was miles' sense of time like? How did he work with you know how did he work with the drums and respond to the drums and stuff like that?
1: He allowed us I can't say us but I can only say for me he loved to be made to feel comfortable so, when I listened to Tony, or uh, Jack, myself, we made him feel comfortable. We were, how can I say, uh, very strong with our in our thought process. This is where we're gonna go. This is what it is right here. And we worked very much in concert with the rhythm section. Whomever was playing bass, piano, we were a team and we presented a unified presentation. It wasn't just a drummer, you know, but, and so he could just play on top of anything and go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Cause it all worked as, it worked as a, as a, a rounded unit, you know, and, and presented him with this buffer that he could play inside and go anywhere. Now, that uh, I felt very much honored by that. Never had to tell me what to do,
0: no. Now you and McLaughlin worked on the Jack Johnson record. So were you the first person he called when he was putting together Mahavishnu? I don't know. Well, how did you how I mean, did you get that's that? That's a call? great
1: question because I don't know. All I know is that he asked me if, if I had time to come and just work on something with him.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: and 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 I, I can and so I said yeah because I did have time. Now they give you more information than you ask. Later on, as times went by, I think it was around. 78, 79, 78, 77. wanted to go on tour. Uh, He had a tour that was pending. Um, He contacted Tony. And um, I had heard about it. Um, But I didn't say anything. I mean, what am I going to say? He wanted to go and, and he hired Tony and, of all people, Jack Bruce to go back out on the road. And Tony contacted him, and and he he didn't hire him. He asked him to come out and play with him. And and Tony stopped and said, I'll get back to you. Then he called back and said, why don't we just go out and call it the Tony Williams Lifetime? And that's when and John contacted me and told me that story and was laughing about it. And John said, no, he declined to do that. He wanted it to be the John McLaughlin trio Mm -hmm. with Tony Williams and Jack Bruce. (laughs) And so yeah right you know so that didn't go over well so I was the second choice and so you know it 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 could have happened that he asked for somebody else and it and it didn't work it wouldn't be the first time or the last time that that would go down
0: yeah yeah now that original that lineup of Mahavishnu you guys did three studio albums and a live album in like two three years so what was the, the creative tension that blew the band up after that period or was he already moving I think beyond it?
1: The creative tension was had, had to do with the fact that the guys that, that especially uh Jerry and Rick, Jerry and uh and Jan, they wanted greater acknowledgement for their participation in the project. Uh they wanted to uh they loved what was happening so much that they wanted to to create musical presentations within the same framework that John had had brought. And John refused to let that happen. And so there was your tension.
0: And uh, and is that the reason that there was never like a, a full-on reunion of that lineup? Because I know you guys are all still alive. So, you know.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I, and it's strangely enough, yet... In 1978, there was a John McLaughlin electric guitarist record with Jan and myself and Jerry on it. I'm not too sure if Rick played on the track or not. I don't know. But for some bizarre reason, um, he just would not use us anymore together. I suspect it's because he had a big problem with Jan sounding a lot like him on synthesizer, but I'm not sure.
0: Hmm. Okay. Now then, you also you and McLaughlin worked with Carlos Santana on the Love, Devotion, Surrender record. Yep. There were multiple drummers on that record, though, right? There were also drummers from Santana's side.
1: Probably. I never listened to the record.
0: Do you Do you enjoy playing with you know a second drummer at all?
1: Um. Yeah. I have played with second drummers. As a matter of fact, I hired Gary Husband to work. With. And he played in my band, Uh drums and keyboard.
0: But uh,
1: I didn't, I mean, if you think that I played in the studio with these guys, uh -uh. I played alone.
0: Okay, okay.
1: All those people came after me or before me. I don't know what happened, um, how that worked. But Uh normally, no. I mean, on that record, not. But uh, on my Traveler album, you can hear me and Gary Husband and, and... and we played in the, he was in my band for a long time. As a matter of fact, no, he didn't play in the Spectrum 40 band. He didn't play drums. But uh, it was, I was starting to lean in that direction again. Yeah. Uh
0: huh. Uh huh. And you also went, uh, you played drums on the tour, the McLaughlin Santana Tour in 73. Yep. Do you know if Columbia there- recorded any of those shows? Because nothing's ever been released, but I've always kind of hoped that some of those shows were recorded.
1: Not to my knowledge no
0: <sighs> I gotta ask you about one of my favorite albums from the 70s, which is the the album Latin Soul Rock by the Fania All-Stars that you're on. Uh-huh how, would, how did you get involved with those guys? How did you know how did you come into the sort of salsa orbit for that record?
1: Recording studio I uh, recorded with uh, Ray Barreto and uh, on his album. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now. That came first, and I did some some jingles for the Latin community, so I became accessible to them. Not not a lot, but sometimes to time, and so I get hired. And then finally, somebody got it through their heads that they should hire me to work on a project called our Latin thing, our something like that. Yeah, uh, with yeah. Jerry Masucci, who was a producer, and we went to. The, original, the old Yankee Stadium before they were going to tear it down in McCoom Sam Park and to prove a point actually, he said that if, you know if it's in summertime and if, if, if on a Friday night uh, it's a nice Friday night and there's no sun no, no, uh, no bad weather, interesting things can happen in, in the Latin community. And so he decided to commit to booking a show at the old Yankee Stadium after it was condemned. And uh, we went there to play on on what was conceivably one of the most volatile uh, situations you, you want to know, uh, on second base with the whole New York City uh, region, Latin community. So people came with the flags of their countries uh-huh. to... To the stadium because it held about seventy thousand people, something like that, and they filled the stadium on that night. They had a, the advance sales, as I if I remember correctly, they were like for that place twenty thousand seats had been sold, but they weren't sure it was going to happen. Thunderstorms were uh, forecast, and next thing you know, there were no thunderstorms. And we went in and we started playing, and what was what was the hook was that Jerry said, uh, the star attraction would be Santana. He didn't say which Santana. <laughs> but Jorge Santana showed up, uh-huh. okay? Not Carlos. And uh, in that one, we had all of the uh, the, the Allegra All-Stars, Allegra All-Stars, we had, all kinds of people playing and I was in the middle of that. and Jan was on it as well and that's the rest was history we never got past as soon as Jorge Santana came on the bandstand the 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 whole stage was was assaulted I mean they, they just they just came from they it was like a a virus coming up behind the, the 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 catcher stream the, the foul the, the way the foul balls would go up They just climbed that and they came down the other end and they came up to us and 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 they 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 climbed all the way up all of the lighting fixtures and everything and they were watching us like that and this is like the Puerto Rican organizations I mean the the people the the, the Cubans the Venezuelans the Colombians and they just kept coming and everybody had finally we had to stop there is a record Mm-hmm. well you, and it, and there is a video that you can see that stuff take place um and as 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 Ray Barreto Mongo Santa Maria at jokuba I, I think or some these guys started to play Candomblé Makumba stuff to keep these people from going completely crazy <laughs> against, amongst each other and destroying all of the musicians in the process while we, the musicians, were able to sneak away through the center field fence. And I'll, I'll always remember it because some of those people helped me pack my drums in the band uh, to, t- to drive out. And as I'm packing all my drums, as I'm driving out slowly with my technician, I'm watching all of the rental percussion instruments going out the, the back place as well. People had stolen that. Man, taking all of the stuff on the bandstand, it, everything was walking, music, uh, music stands, everything gone, except for three kunga players on the bandstand. <laughs> it was heavy, it was very heavy, and there were no, there was no New York's finest police anywhere to be found in Bronx on that night. It was amazing. Man, they were in the audience in, in plain clothes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, you, you made a record around that time, like 77, 78. You made a record with Sonny Rollins, and he's a guy... Yeah, and
1: Patrice Russian, and, and, uh, and um, a bass player used to play with me, too. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Alex Blake, the bass player. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Alex, right. right. Now,
0: Rollins... Is a guy who locks in with the rhythm section because a lot of the time he doesn't even have a piano. He's not really interested in chords that much. So, what was you know what was that like playing with him in those circumstances?
1: Uh, I was quite honored. Oh, you know, I did, I did two. One of them, Richard Davis played bass on, and then Alex played on the other one. But uh, I found it really unique. Uh, I found it also. I got it. That 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 Tony it was all about Sonny, not about nobody else. Mm-hmm. You know. And so you either followed his direction or you know, you was either his way or the highway. That's it. And so you know, we did what he had. he wanted us to do. That was for for uh, for milestone records I think.
2: Yeah.
1: And yeah. uh yeah, it was uh it was an experience and, and I and, and that's all I can really say. Musically I can't say a whole lot about that one way or another. Um, with maybe one of the only records recording projects I've ever done with Patrice as well. I don't know. You know, it, It's like shifts happening in the night. You, there's some people that, that you revere highly and, and you just never work with. I mean, it's a Demiola. I've never recorded with the guy. I've been in his presence very, very rarely. And one time I think he, I even opened a show to him uh, over the last five years it would have been the first time I'd ever played in his presence at all mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and then a little bit in the 70s also you played on a bunch of records on the CTI label working with Creed Taylor and you know yeah. guys like Stanley Tarantine and Grover Washington Jr. and Freddie Hubbard and yeah. you know some Ron yeah. Carter sessions CTI always had a really produced kind of sound you know, very clean, uh-huh. very polished. So I guess my question is, how much can a producer change your drum sound? And how much do you worry about that when it's not your album?
1: Well, last question. First, I don't worry because my drum sound, it's in my hands. They can do whatever they want, but it'll still be my character. It's not the sound of the drums, it's much—it's a combination of, how, of my approach uh, make, that makes up my approach to playing music. Uh, as, as a uh, an element within the rhythm section mm-hmm. so I'm never worried about not being properly represented if I'm not then it's my fault give me cardboard boxes and I'll play who I am no problem uh-huh. so uh-huh. it doesn't really kind of matter uh, they will they will double down on in uh, on stuff they will they will uh, use dampening and and all kinds of stuff, if they feel that it's necessary for what what the physical uh, offering that they have in mind, that's not my problem. You know, I'll still be me when I'm playing. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, on your own records in the 80s, you did some albums, the, the albums that were on GRP and stuff like that, that had more of a programmed sounding feel You know, and there were some you know programmed rhythms and stuff like that. So, what were what were your thoughts about the direction that jazz and funk were going in in that you know, in that period? Like, I'm particularly thinking of the album where you did a a version of "Sign of the Times" by Prince.
1: I wanted to incorporate the click track more in in my performance to set up a certain feeling, which I felt uh, a certain personality, which I felt was inherent in. In songs like "Sign" at the times, because mo- many times fans do not they, they play on their own. They play raw. They don't—it takes them a very long time to record because they don't have—they don't have rhythmic control of themselves. So they just play. And I thought I'm going to use this as a as a tool, and I'm going to use the click as a tool, I'm going to try to play as mus- musically as I can inside the, the, the parameters that the, the click track would provide me and to this day I still do that from time to time uh, until eventually you become the click track you become used to, to sustaining uh, certain patterns because you know you, you feel comfortable with the with uh, with the, the physical or physical coordinates of aspects of it so that you don't lose the tempo unless you want to you know, or you, uh, either making it faster or slower, but it's for a reason. And that was always to me uh, something that I, I felt was was an element that I could explore or exploit and make it stronger from all aspects for myself. Uh, and I feel I've arrived there, I'm able to do that on a consistent basis now without a click. But uh-huh. still I would use a click because I can hear the click and play inside it, whether it be all uh, as we call it, behind the beat or ahead of the beat, and still know exactly where I am, or in the center of the beat, and know where I am. And this is something that I felt would be a good a musical dimension uh, element to have in my musical bag of tricks, if you will.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, of, you know, rhythmic control and things like that, I'm curious about the two records that you made with Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. Because I don't think of the Grateful Dead as being a particularly rhythmically tight group. So how was Weir to work with in that regard?
1: Bob had a good sense of rhythm and, and also you can, you can, well, if you listen to Franklin Sowers, things like this, that he's written, They have a strong sense of of direction. And I never had any problem with him. And also, for what it's worth, I mean, his presentation as a vocalist was pretty good. I had no problem with it. And uh, it was more like a storyteller. Um, And the guy who kind of supported him in, in both those areas of rhythm was Bobby Cochran. So Bobby was his fallback. Bobby had Eddie Cochran's voice. And he's a hell of a guitar player, so he was your solo player, and in the band, and it, it just was—you know—he did all of the, the, the right things. That he had the right formula for that kind of rockabilly feeling, and it was cool, no problem. Mm-hmm. Had mm-hmm. ball, yeah. Learned a lot, really. You know, uh, that was my objective, was to to, to understand better the whole, uh, to some degree, uh, the country's country and western side of things because otherwise i didn't i didn't have a clue what to do with that stuff at all it wasn't my wasn't my music i wasn't born in it and i respected that and so i i didn't even move in that direction until until i was asked by cochran and and where to 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 come and join him in doing this thing otherwise i never would have moved that way i never thought about it
0: yeah yeah now you did uh, the albums, uh, the Art of Three, the Art of Four, the Art of Five, and then the records that you did with uh, Donald Harrison, the saxophonist. those were all kind yeah. of a return to traditional jazz playing. So uh-huh. how does your approach to the kit change when you're doing that? Do you strip down to a little like Max Roach kit, or do you go you know, do you still bring in everything?
1: What I do is choose the drums that seem that, that fit the, 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 the presentation. And with the Art of Three, I hear it. I wanted to try and the, the, the frequencies that would best enhance or support the other two musical elements in, in, the, in, the, in the group. And I found that to be a small set of drums just because of the way I play. And nothing bigger than a 20-inch bass drum. Uh, but if it's an 18, then it had to be about two inches longer just so that it would hold tone. And what tone would be important? You know, most jazz musicians play in C, B flat, F, G, maybe. You know, not going to go too far away from that stuff. And so you find the notes that, that feel comfortable and you connect in that way with those players. You know, you find the symbols that will stay out of the frequency range in terms of the, the, um, the local partials of the symbols. Uh, clashing with what the bass player is playing. You, mm-hmm. you, you think about these kind of situations uh, and what symbol to play when. You know, so now you, you're 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 really being you're thinking artistically. You're not you're not an automaton. You're not just saying, "Oh, I'm going to do this and play these patterns for this reason." They have all everything you do has a reason. But it has to. It starts with what you're going to play on. Because if you don't understand why the drums are the way they are. How are you going to do anything with them? You know, and it goes on like this. So that's what I choose to do, depending on who's playing in the band, what the what the musical configuration is, and how they play. Being familiar with their approach, to, the musicians' approach to playing helps me to decide what instrument, I'm doing, what snare drum I'm going to use, what kind of, what the tonal character of my musical community that I have to choose from, which is like a, a painter's palette, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. I know you do master classes and stuff like that. So, what do you what do you teach students? Like, what do they tend to want to know from you, and what do you think they need to know?
1: Well, it has a lot to do with what I just told you. How, you, how do you play the drums? Great question. Now, how much time do you have? You know, <laughs> and then we open up into all of, into how you play. It can be time, tempo, treatment of tempo. uh, playing playing free. What does that mean to play free? The interpretation of free. In relationship to what? Who holds someone in the band when you're playing free has to be a point of reference. Who might that be? It depends. Could so be the drummer, but then the drummer can't play free. The drummer has to lay down some disciplined pattern or the bass player has to play some specific note that represents the piece that everyone can come back to and say, okay, I touched home. That's home. I know that door is still there. Let me just go back out and see what else is in the, in in the environment within reason, you know, Mm -hmm. it still calls for an artistic approach to playing without borders, but still, in a way, you still have to have some kind of discipline. Otherwise, you cannot play without borders because you don't know what you're doing because you have no discipline to do it. So it's it's all about talking these I mean, talking up these sites, speaking as in my... my, my uh, I have a, a, a project I call Billy Cobham's Art of the Rhythm Section Retreat. And we bring in people and, and, just, and work with them and entertain these ideas. How do you play? Just a simple shuffle. Why is it so complicated to play simply? It's a very, very 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 interesting point. Because everybody comes to show when they when they're allowed to play, they play everything they know more than likely in the first bar of the <laughs> tune. And and you you ask, well, okay, is there anything else you need to do now so that we can get on to playing the music? Let's choose just a little bit of what you know, which all sounds good, but maybe you can expand on that and we talk about how to do that. And, and, and not just talk about, but provide examples on how that should happen and uh, try to get them to, the the those taking part, the participants, to use those those concepts, those ideas, and, uh, and to bring out the best in them that they can at the time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think the last 30 years of programmed rhythms, like not just hip-hop, but dance music and pop and R&B and everything, do you think it has changed the way young drummers think? Like, do they hear differently than players of your generation, do you think? Sure.
1: Sure. They they have a narrower view because they haven't had very much to... to they don't have a wide-ranging model. They only hear... A lot of thumping and thumping, and and even in the, the presentation vocally. Remember, you have the the drummers, the people who, who who sing the bass drum and, whatever they do, and they sing the drum set, you know. And they made a big thing out of that, and that's what the drums sound like. When they when when people start to go back to playing the drums, they want them to sound like the people who sang the bass drum part, and all of that. So it's it's a process. They have very little to work with, and these days they play. Generally speaking, in comparison to the musical instruments that were available when I was younger, very poor, very very poor equipment, and it it's a reflection of the price tag. The drum sets that are that are that are being played today, generally speaking, you can buy a whole set for a gram. That's including the cymbals, the seats the drum stands, all of that. And people are fighting over the fact that it's, you know, it's why the why is it $999? I mean, I can get this for $700. No one cares about how it sounds. Because it all sounds like bop, bop, bop. It sounds like boxes. And then when you realize that the people who are playing it would not know the difference one way or another. They don't know how to hold a drumstick to bring the sound, to sting the drum and to draw the sound out of it. They have no idea why, how drum heads are made, why there are 2 heads on the drum or as opposed to one fly depending on the kind of music that they're playing, why there's a resonant head on the bottom that is never played, only it's designed to resonate. They don't even know that. Generally speaking, they're happy to just play the heads on the drum that came with the drum set. They don't even realize that those heads are not designed to be played on. They're designed to keep the shells in round. That's why there's no tone. But nobody told them, and so, therefore, they never asked, so they never know. <laughs> and they use the same heads until they feel like the drums don't sound good anymore, and then they throw out the drums and the heads and everything.
0: Uh, when was the last time that you had a breakthrough as a player yourself?
1: had a breakthrough? I you, don't know. What on, do you
0: mean by that? Like on your instrument, like you came you came across something that you'd never done before or never heard before, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, about a couple of days ago. Then I tried to make it better. I guess I have two final questions. The first one is because I looked at uh, the band that you're with, and it's, I believe it's guitar, bass, and two keyboardists, and you? So... Uh, no.
1: No, it's not.
0: Oh, it's not? Okay. No.
1: The guitarist is Farid Hak. Keyboardist is Scott Tibbs. The bassoonist and soprano saxophonist is Paul Hansen. The bass player is Tim Landers.
0: Oh, okay. I must have been looking at the Spectrum 40 band rather than the... There wasn't
1: uh... two keyboard players in that band either. No? <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> no. That was That was Gary Husband uh, and then uh, Admara Ruiz for a split second and then Jerry Atkins and uh and they all came one after the other. Okay. Uh never been to keyboardists in that band. Okay. No, my band in the Europe has two keyboard players. Okay. Hamilton and Chameleon uh Camellia Yeah, that's it.
0: Okay, but that's not the band that you're mm-hmm. on tour with now. Mm-mm. So Mm-mm. so I guess no. my question though is how have you rearranged the uh the Crosswinds music for this current lineup since it, you know, it's a different Palette of horns and stuff like that. So. Uh huh.
1: Well, what I chose to do was to with with, with the, the new arrangements is to make it more of a a band presentation with parts where we all play together. Uh, with there are canonistic parts there, there are contrapuntal parts, so it, it gave everyone a, a specific part to play uh, while while focusing on the other aspects of improvisation. So. Everyone is is uh, responsible for a lot of things that's going on, and playing. mean, one of them is playing in tune, playing within the chord change uh, when and and where it's necessary. So there's a lot of questions about harmonics and harmony that that pop up that 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 generally in other bands would not, because once you play the melody and the bridge and all of that, all of a sudden it's open season. You can play as many choruses as you want which doesn't happen in my band no we normally play a 90-minute show it averages out to be about between 9 or 10 pieces including my drum solo and that's it and that's all we play we don't play any more than that so that means that in those pieces it's designed for different combinations of, of tonal characters to present themselves there are different points in the show where individuals play uh, improvised solos, uh, many times in the beginning of a of a tune, that, may, that they may not have any any access for soloing in, you know. So I can in these I we play called Panama, the bass player has an opening uh, track where he can play whatever he wants. Uh in under the Baba tree, the guitarist plays whatever he wants in the beginning, but it's all designed in in a way so that everybody it's comfortable with the amount of times that they, I mean, I feel like a good basketball team where everybody gets a chance to touch the ball enough to score some points Mm -hmm. for themselves, you know, yet in the end, the team wins the game, you know, because we play together and that's, that's important. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And I guess my final question is I'm just idly curious because, you know, McLaughlin did what he was billing as his farewell tour last year. Where he came around and played Mahavishnu music, and I'm wondering if you saw any of those performances or were in touch with him, you know, when he was in the states, at all?
1: No, no, I was not in touch with McLaughlin. I I assume that was to me a a given. He didn't want to play this music until he absolutely had to. That was his swan song. He wanted to check out. Started with it, never played it, and he felt that that would be a real sales pitch, a, a sales point. If he didn't, if he played it, then, which is correct, I, I absolutely agree with him. He uh, he did the right thing. Um, he kept it the way his his performance of of the old tunes. He kept until it was he decided that he wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. So now it's done. The last thing he wants to do is do it again. But now it's all hat. Mm-hmm. Totally, the door shut. But then you never know, it, John. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he may come up with new arrangements of it. You know, you never know.
0: From your point of view, it must feel kind of good that he had two drummers on that show. That it took oh, I don't that care. it took two drummers to recreate what you had done.
1: Well, wasn't the first time or the last time that I ever happened either. You know, uh, with uh, uh, Jazz Is Dead, that happened. Uh, there were two drummers, and um, they played my parts. One time I just stopped working with the band, uh, with the Midnight, I think there were two drummers. You know, there you go. It, from time to time, if that's what they, you know, it's not my, not my place, but uh, if that's what they feel they, they need to make it happen, then so be it.
0: Okay, thanks for listening. That was my interview with Billy Cobham, and this is the end of episode 14 of the Burning Ambulance podcast. We're proud to be a part of the Osiris Podcast Network, so check out OsirisPod.com to hear other podcasts about all kinds of music and culture and a whole range of subjects, and Osiris partners with Relics Magazine, so check out Relics.com for music news. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.